This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined by my two colleagues, Ed Reed and Andrew Dykes, and we're going to try to discuss energy news in a week when no story could possibly beat the Japanese macaque, the monkey, that went missing in the Highlands and subsequently discovered four days later. I think he just wanted a holiday, Ed. I mean, who's to blame him? I mean, you know, we all need to get out there and stretch our legs, don't we? You know, find some new horizons. God bless him, I say. I think he was maybe a little a wee tipple at Highland Distillery nearby, perhaps drunk monkey. Probably not, but uh, maybe yeah. um, maybe I'm sharing too much. But it was obviously uh, the talk of the uh, the newsroom in Aberdeen this week, and and rightly so. <laughs> uh, one of the one of the factoids I picked out was that uh, they, I think they had spoken to a monkey expert around uh, how they could possibly oh my get gosh. back, and it, it was uh, I think what most people were worried about was the cold. Apparently, he was going to be fine in the cold, but he might get lonely. And that might be his biggest risk in the wild. Oh, so, uh, well, oh, but to be fair, to be probably fair, a blessing that, he's been found. If you go to the Highland Wildlife Park, they're all bunched. There's loads of them, <laughs> loads of these macaques all together. So I, I guess they're community animals. I was going to ask. Um, there was kind of a reason I brought it up. Do you guys remember uh, the one-eyed cat a couple of years ago that kind of stowed away in an oil rig? It was like lost from Peterhead yes. and found on Buzzard or something. I do I remember him well. Yeah, yeah. I think Cyclops it's Cyclops. Jack. Slash a, a host of other names that I think he earned at the port and the prison. He really got around. Really did, really did. I mean, some well, more heartwarming uh, animal stories. Yes. Are clearly, uh, what uh, what the podcast is missing. Well, uh, while monkeying around could very well describe the quality Ooh. of discourse hey. on this podcast and of, around <laughs> energy of late. We will attempt to push on as we get into this week's stories. Uh, Andrew, a lot of build up we've had around more licenses, which have finally been issued this week. Yes, so this is the news this week that the North Sea Transition Authority issued 24 new North Sea exploration licenses as part of the new tranche of permits from the 33rd licensing round. So the round opened, I think, October, September 2022, closed to applications about a year ago, and this is the second kind of block of permits that have been issued. Uh, So 17 companies were successful. They won licenses across 74 blocks and part blocks, all of them, interestingly, in the central North Sea, northern North Sea, and west of Shetland. Um, and it yet yeah, follows the 27 permits that we saw in October. It takes the total to 51 out of the 115 applications that were made. Just to note on the, the other ones, um, supposedly I think a lot of them lie in the Southern North Sea and the East Irish Sea. I think there's some environmental uh, assessments that still need to be made and are being finalized by OPRED, but the third tranche of licenses are set to follow in the coming months, the NST has said. So that's a, what, another kind of 60 permits potentially to go. Uh, Whether we see that much will be interesting as well, Um, but we can dive into the results from this week first. So uh, Equinor received the most uh, pure blocks, like 14 blocks across two licenses, one of which it shares with Suncor, uh, which obviously it bought out last year, so fully owned by Equinor. Uh, We have Total Energies, Shell, Arcadian, and Neo, uh, all of whom I think secured a high number of blocks as well. We have a few for Painted Wolf Resources, for Parkmead, and for North Sea Natural Resources. I think we'll... Best probably to do it by region. Um, so we've mentioned Park Mead, uh, Anasuria Hibiscus uh, picked up a couple of blocks. We've got a couple for Neo, a couple for Ping, uh, Dana, and uh, another block near its Triton FPSO. Uh, interestingly, Orcadian uh, picked nine blocks, I think quite a substantial tranche, along with its partners, uh, the Australian firm Triangle Energy. They've already said a little bit uh, about this. Um, so this is the Mid-North Sea High license, a shallow gas project, which contains, I think, up to 336 BCF of gross prospective recoverable resources on a P50 basis. Uh, two prospects, in particular, Glen Luff, Glen Lau, I'm sure it's Glen Luff, and Brecca. Um, 
which they are confident pronunciation. I think that's all <laughs> I'm, I'm powering through. <laughs> Glenn, Glenn, let Glenn laugh. Uh, <laughs> which uh, an Arcadian is going to be the, the license administrator and hold fifty percent of the license. Uh, there's a few more. I think P- Painted Wolf was an interesting one. I think they've focused mainly on the Southern North Sea. Alistair, I, I hadn't heard of them before, actually. You've covered them a couple of times. They seem to be kind of gas-focused Southern North Sea, so interesting that they've come into you know a little bit further north. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think Painted Wolf, I've talked I've talked to uh, a couple of times. Our own uh, Matt Perry of this parish uh, actually spoke to their um, one of their bosses yesterday um, to talk a bit more, bit more about, I guess, the Central North Sea stuff. Um, I actually haven't picked up with them, so I'm not quite sure. Nonetheless, you're you're quite right. They they have um, they've done a lot of stuff in the Southern North Sea. In fact, they paired up with uh, Puri- uh, Curium Resources. If anybody is familiar with Spirit Energy, they'll uh, be familiar with uh, Chris Cox, who is formerly their CEO. Uh, Curium is uh, kind of bidding for acreage in the Southern North Sea, um, and and I know that Painted Wolf have been kind of partnering with them, and, and there's been some talk around going after Pegasus, which is a, a kind of a, a prolific tieback potential to the the Cygnus uh, gas field in the southern area. Um, I mean, just looking, I suppose, looking at the awards, I mean, yeah, the, the Central North Sea, and, and with, like Painted Wolf, we've seen a few companies kind of come out and say, oh, this is what we're getting after. Here's our here's our, our, our prospects, and that sounds good. I know I know that BP uh, I've, I've picked up as well, and I think I think I read that this is their 60th year in the North Sea, so perhaps we need to do something on that. But I, I suppose just the, the, the tranche nature of these awards as well is probably worth noting. I, I, and you said, Andrew, I think it was, was it, was it October time we got the first kind of a launch of this? Yes, uh, end of and, October. And we still don't have the Southern North Sea licenses. There's still another tranche to come. And I, I just wonder if there might be any... I don't know, frustration for companies trying to get their, their plans afoot. I, it's, 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 it's an interesting thought. Um, I, I don't know whether it speaks to the amount of competition, potentially. I mean, clearly there's, there's this environmental um, habitat assessment thing they've mentioned, um, which clearly you know, will inform the, the pace of progress on it. But I do wonder, you know, we saw a huge amount of competition in the Southern North Sea because of the amount of infrastructure there uh, in the carbon storage rounds. And I wonder whether those bids are actually, you're down to kind of who is the best operator and, you know, you might have four or five looking for the same prospects at that point. Um, I also know there's some open acreage. I don't know if that takes longer or kind of more in-depth assessment, but I know Arcadian has uh, its eyes on another piece of open acreage. They want to do a very interesting kind of gas-to-wire project that we've written on uh, as well, so it'll be interesting to see if they come through there. One other one I wanted to pick up in the northern section, so Equinor um, picked up a couple of licenses around its current position, so again, it's going to, say it's going to prioritize infrastructure exploration, hopefully quick to bring on. Um, Apache Barrel won a Blanc. And I wanted to pick up with you, Alistair. You, you seem to find that surprising, I think, when you were reading out the list. Is that they've kind of said they wouldn't be looking to drill last year? So you yeah, expecting yeah, a, I, a bit of a change of pace there? I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it is an odd one, isn't it? I mean, if, perhaps this is to continue with what they've got currently. But, um, you know, if, if there's no intention to drill further, um, be that infill wells or exploration, uh, handing them what is ostensibly an exploration license um, seems counterintuitive. Um, so I, I don't know. We've not heard from them in terms of what the plans are. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was a bit surprised to see that. Perhaps that's just, you know, I, I, it could be that's just a continuation of, I guess, the existing main barrel license that that's potential. I've not, I've not actually looked at it properly. So that, that's, that's, that could be the case and that might explain it. But um, yeah. But yeah, one, it's one to watch, I think. Um, yeah, a few more I mean, in, the, in the northern sector for, for Anquest and, and Equinor and Neo with Shell. Hmm. And then west of Shetland, just a couple, but uh, a, a sizable number of blocks. Total Energies and Shell picked up quite a few blocks uh, for one license. And again, Equinor, quite a few uh, blocks, but one single license issued to them. Um, I think it's, it's also worth maybe just kind of looking a little bit at the reaction. Um, <laughs> obviously, welcomed. 
Welcomed warmly by uh, Trade Body UK. I'm David Whitehouse, sort of pointing about the number of fields, uh, 280 in production. By the end of the decade, 180 of them will be uh, ceased production. So saying, you know, they need the churn of licenses for an or- what they've called an orderly transition that's going to continue to support jobs and communities. Uh, it's going to publish an industry manifesto, uh, I think, in a couple of uh, weeks' time, which I'm assuming will tie into sort of licensing and also the, the general state of uh, the sector with regards uh, the looming general election, the timing of which we still don't know, but any minute now, I'm sure. Um, I think uh, some of the Scottish reaction has obviously been slightly more critical. Um, Scotland's Energy Secretary Neil Gray said that uh, they recognise the important role that North Sea oil and gas plays, but as a declining resource, it must be managed in a manner that's consistent with uh, responding to the global climate emergency. I think very much picking up on some of the stuff that Hamza Youssef's been saying in in, uh, recent months around kind of the climate leadership aspects of continuing licensing. But I think, um, you know, the, the the climate response, I think, is to be expected. I think it's in uh, very much in line with what we've seen before. I haven't seen a sort of huge boost from the industry that we maybe saw in the first round. I don't know if that's just, as you say, the tranche nature of this and the fact that they're sort of being released in, in uh, little amounts rather than one big, you know, extravaganza. Mm. Um, but maybe it's just the nature of, uh, of Q4 results as well. Maybe people are kind of keeping their cards close to their chest while they figure out what they want to do with these. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, we, we, I mean, certainly we saw, I mean, maybe, maybe maybe I'm being a bit too siloed, but we saw a lot of reaction in our social medias. Um, but uh, yeah, it's perhaps not been as quite the, the burst. I don't know whether, has, has it perhaps been more muted than the, the last kind of series of licenses we got? I, I'm not too sure, but um, does that mean that the discourse is, is dying down? Probably not. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. And uh, I'm, I dare say, as we ramp up towards a general election, uh, as, as you tee up quite nicely there, Andrew, uh, we'll be hearing more of that. And that will lead us on to our next story after this. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, sticking with exploration, and we've had some fresh polling this week, which I know you both love polling. Um, Among other things, uh, it's saying that the majority of Scots back domestic oil and gas production, but only a third of them back new exploration licenses being issued. So is that a contradiction in terms? Uh, This was carried out by Servation on behalf of the advisory firm True North. A thousand people of varying ages and voting intentions across Scotland polled anonymously. 75% 75% said they support domestic North Sea production. 60% see a positive economic impact from firms operating in the region. However, asked about the Scottish government's policy to presume against any further North Sea exploration, just 35% said the policy was wrong. 32% are in support of it. The remaining 33 are either indifferent or they don't know. So in a nutshell, 
uh, they're kind of split three ways. Three quarters of Scots um, believe it's right to continue domestic oil and gas production, but only a third of them seem to back further exploration. And the industry would argue, of course, that and has argued that further exploration licenses, as we've seen this week, uh, would help mitigate the reliance on overseas imports while continuing to give us the economic boost that this polling um, points to. Um, however, that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't really seem to be the view of those uh, these polling results, and, and, and we need to maybe dig into why that is. Um, we know that even if new licenses are awarded, it won't stop the decline of the North Sea. All it can really hope to do is slow it down. That's that's fact. There's obviously a lot of mixed messaging around from politicians and the like, and I'm sure that's not necessarily going to improve in the months ahead, particularly around energy security and oil exports, exported oil, in the main going to European refineries, but obviously much of that sent back in in the form of refined products. And it's part of, a, I guess, a Northwest Europe uh, energy resilience system that we've had for, well, for decades, frankly. I would expect, you know, some of the knock-on consequences perhaps aren't being fully appreciated here either. Uh, policy signals like ending licenses, the windfall tax, we've seen that uh, being cited by drilling firms saying they're taking rigs and vessels out the UK for better prospects elsewhere. That in turn obviously means that these vessels and perhaps the skills won't be there for decommissioning work, carbon capture and storage, energy transition activities in the kind of near future. And it won't be easy dragging these kinds of uh, rigs and vessels that we need back from uh, the other more prospective areas. I think we need to be mindful. Uh, the difference between new exploration licenses being issued and, for example, environmental approvals for projects already in the pi pipeline. I don't know whether that will necessarily be appreciated by politicians, <laughs> but uh, there is a difference. Um, and we should also consider, of course, that uh, new licenses are not part of the Scottish government's remit of powers. But yeah, I think perhaps an educational piece there, uh, as I say, 75% for domestic production, only about 35% or so are for continued exploration. Um, what do you guys think? I mean, is, is that a contradiction in terms or does it go together? I mean, the thing that strikes me is, uh, I mean, I think, you know, as you say, there is, there is, I suppose, there's a sort of degree of, uh, of sort of education there. But I think it also kind of shows something about, about you know, p how divided people do feel about, you know, there's that kind of, you know, the energy trilemma that we've heard so much about, right? How do you square, you know, producing more oil and gas with, you know, the kind of concerns around climate change? And I think, you know, that kind of that kind of divide that you're seeing there between sort of, you know, yeah, we'll carry on producing, but no more exploration kind of embodies that. So I, I feel that's kind of maybe not, maybe not as much of a surprise. I suppose my one question for you, Alistair, would be, does, does this show a, a change in attitudes from like previous years? Are people becoming more opposed to exploration? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I was I was at an event this week. Um, shout out to the Hollywood Sources Political Podcast who invited us along, um, where all this is kind of getting discussed. And, and Russell Borthwick from the Chamber of Commerce um, kind of suggested that because this is an anonymous poll, um, perhaps if people knew that names were being put to it, they perhaps wouldn't uh, have voted the way they they voted. Um, not for us to say. Certainly, polling of this type before has actually indicated a, a majority in favor of things like domestic production but yeah I think I think I think exploration in particular is quite polarized and I think the the discourse around it isn't really helping um this event we're at you know three politicians of different political denominations all saying you know we're having constructive discussions about the North Sea these are areas we can all work together um but yeah going into a general election year I find it very hard to believe that that will uh, necessarily remain the case um probably a point to add. Uh, energy Minister, Scotland's Energy Minister, Gillian Martin, said she doesn't like 
the wording presumption against, which is obviously in the Scottish government's draft energy strategy, the finalised copy is expected in the summer. It doesn't say much, she says. It, you know, this presumption against we're getting too hung up on, on these these words. Obviously, she was challenged, and like you do see why people are getting hung up on it. Um, she says it won't be carp, it won't be carte blanche. It won't mean you know no more licenses at all, but it will presume you know it will assume uh, I'll be a presumption uh, you know that that they'll probably not hit their climate goals or they'll have to pass stringent tests. She kind of compared it to you know your driving tests. You're, it's presumed you're going to fail that unless you you succeed. Speak for yourself. Um, <laughs> You know, well, did, what, were you were you a first time passer? Do you, you know, know what I was actually? Oh, get get <laughs> get! Was, oh, come uh, on! I, I'm I had a presumption against failing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sickened by this. I'm absolutely sickened by it. Um, yeah. So, well, maybe if it's if it's in the Andrew Dykes um, uh, School of Learning, um, we'll have we'll have all all successful um, applications for licenses I mean, under the Scottish. It doesn't exactly stir confidence in the future, I suppose, would be the point that should be made. And she would not answer when asked whether presumption against will be in that final wording in the summer. Ed? I'm just going to bring in a, a quick thing. I, so I, I spoke to uh, Brian Larkin, the CEO of United Oil & Gas, uh, this week. And obviously, they're, they're, they're mostly kind of not looking at the UK. And they're kind of, you know, and, he, and I, so I asked him about Egypt, where they, they kind of found some real problems. And, you know, they can't get their money out. They've got foreign exchange challenges. They're not getting paid. And I was like, oh, it sounds like you wouldn't go back to Egypt. And he was like, I would go back to Egypt in a heartbeat. I just need a bigger company to be able to ride it out. And then I asked him about the North Sea. And he was like, ah, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's you know, the the windfall tax clearly disincentivizes, uh, you know, any investment in, 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 you know, sort of marginal fields and things like that. And it was really fascinating because obviously he'd had this, you know, he's had two bad experiences, right? So they, they, they lost the, uh, like, a, like a deal they were trying to do last year with, um, I think, Quattro. Quattro? Right, exactly. Yeah. And they've also just, you know, sort of been declared in default in Egypt. So that, that both of these things kind of feel negative. But yeah, it felt like he was kind of thumbs up Egypt, thumbs down North Sea. Yeah, I, th I think I think. Did, did anyone poll him on this? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think for companies, in particular, companies looking to do farm out deals, um, in the past couple of years, it's been a bit tricky. It seems, uh, dare I say it, there's a bit more um, positive kind of outlook there. And and I think I think part of, uh, from what I recall, the the Quattro thing, you know. I think there was a degree of you know trying to get finance there, and, and and the aspect of trying to get finance to get that deal across probably would have been impacted. I would expect by um, you know the the EPL, and, and we've certainly heard of things like the EPL really impacting uh, mechanisms like reserves based lending, for example. So so that that doesn't surprise me that that he he, he would say that, and I'm sure it's a sentiment shared by. Uh, some others, um, but maybe just to, to run through a couple other stats very quickly, if I could. Um, the Scottish government's plan to phase out gas and diesel boilers by 2045, 56% uh, assumed that was not uh, achievable. They said it's not considered achievable. 70% said plans to phase out petrol and diesel cars by 2030 was not achievable. 42% um, said the First Minister is not enacting the right policies to make Scotland the net zero capital of the world, whereas 28% 20, said he was, 31% said they don't know. So clearly, I, I think uh, a lot to be done here. And, you know, if we're going to presume against exploration, we should probably be putting in some policies that makes uh, the net zero piece uh, work more rapidly. Um, but it's not a particularly positive picture, I think, from what we've seen here, even though there is, you know, support for the North Sea, I think there's a really mixed picture on exploration in the future, and certainly a mixed picture when it comes to 
uh, Net Zero and Scotland's journey there. Anyway, we will uh, leave that for now. I'm sure we'll be back to it as we move forward with the general election stuff. But next, it's over to Aramco, where some, well, some big cuts have been hitting the big oil services firms. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice live app featuring a personalized feed, and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Okay, Ed, some big moves, big cuts by Aramco this week. Uh, bring us up to speed if you could. Yeah, so um, Aramco uh, this week came out with an extremely terse statement, obviously, as as they, 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 they tend to, um, essentially saying that instead of aiming to produce uh, 13 million barrels per day, uh, they would aim for 12 instead, which was their sort of previous target. Um, this, uh, you know, was, um, the, the, the statement didn't give very much away, but obviously there was the, the, the kind of the, the impact of this uh, decision was kind of, as you say, uh, felt across the world, uh, particularly amongst the big, uh, the big, the big service providers. So, uh, Weatherford, SLB, Saipem, they, they, they all saw, uh, share prices fall really because of that sort of the expectation of, of sort of, you know, lost future work. I think, you know, while the, that was kind of an understandable move, I think there were, there were kind of a number of sort of additional kind of wrinkles in that story that that obviously that kind of terse statement and that kind of share price impact maybe don't quite fully capture. So, I mean, I think it's worth thinking about what Saudi Arabia is actually producing at the moment, right? It's, a, it's just under 9 million barrels per day. So, and they have this, you know, so... Even if they, you know, reduce their kind of maximum sustainable capacity, which is their the MSE, which is that kind of top line figure, to twelve million, they've still got three million barrels per day in the tank, which is a substantial amount. I mean, that pretty much would be, you know, one of the biggest kind of producers in the world, irregardless of the fact that it's not being produced. So I think for Saudi Arabia, there are a number of reasons why they might not, uh, well, they might sort of dial down this uh, this 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 ambition from from. 13 to 12. I mean, I think for a start, uh, obviously inflation, um, you know, we're, we're, we've all had discussions around uh, inflation and supply chain, projects are getting more expensive, drill rigs are up, steel is up, all of these challenges. Is this is this a good time to be to be chasing another million barrels per day? If particularly if uh, there's uh, no no particular need in the sh- in the near term for them to actually start producing it? Um, and I think there's 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 also that kind of question around you know uh, the that idea of do they actually need it? So if we think back to when they launched the plan to to, to changing it from twelve to thirteen, it was in March twenty twenty. Obviously, it was just ahead of the, of the the pandemic, so it's slightly kind of uh, hazy looking back. But actually, at that point, Saudi Arabia and Russia were engaged in a price war, um, and Saudi Arabia was essentially saying. Do not challenge us on price because we can outproduce you uh, at a lower price for longer. 
And to me, it really feels like that 13 million barrel per day target was part of that that narrative of saying, look, don't come at us because we're the uh, we're the biggest producers around. Now, obviously, that 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 narrative has changed, right? Russia's kind of on board. Obviously, there are some challenges around OPEC plus and some sort of internal politicking. But broadly speaking, all those kind of those those producers are in alignment. So it's the, it, there's a kind of a question there about you know did, is it it just feels like a natural kind of uh, move to kind of dial it back. I think I think it's also worth mentioning there are a number of um, dare I say conspiracy theories you know around could Saudi Arabia actually produce thirteen million barrels per day? What's the actual state of reserves? You know, famously there's a there's a lack of transparency around the uh, the, the, the the kingdom's you know barrels under the ground. So I think there are there, you know there are questions there. I don't think anyone's got a good answer to that. But I think you know it's 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 kind of worth noting. So. In the near term, they are essentially saying they're kind of moving away from some of the, the, the kind of the most ambitious projects. I think Safonia, which was about 700,000 barrels per day, is not going to move ahead at the moment. That was one of their offshore projects. Um, and I think so RBC came out with an estimate saying they was going to trim about $5 billion per year from their capex. So for Saudi, it's it's not a big deal. It doesn't look like they were going to produce that extra sort of one million barrels per day. So it feels like, to me, kind of like a, like a sensible, kind of like a housekeeping move. But obviously, in the sort of the uh, the, the the oil service companies, it's 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 going to be some cause for concern. How how are they? I mean, I guess I was reading your piece there that some of them, some of the CEOs, I suppose you might expect the CEOs to downplay it, but in the long term, they seem to be kind of saying, well, you know, it is what it is. You know. Long term, there's still plenty we can get it. We're going to be doing out of Saudi, and no undue concern. But I don't know whether you know what they're showing on the surface perhaps isn't what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, I think look, understandably, they've got a sort of a duty to say, no, of course we're okay. We'll be <laughs> absolutely fine with that. This five billion dollars uh, per year of capex. Uh, why? Why are you asking? Um, but I, I mean, I think look, obviously, we're still seeing a lot of activity around the world, right? I mean, I think you know, particularly in the US. So I think you know, there, and there is still sort of activity in in Saudi Arabia, right? They are still investing, so there are still kind of projects going ahead. And I think you know, one of the kind of the questions that it that it raises, um, you know, maybe Aramco might be looking at other opportunities, right? If they are thinking about what to do with their money, is uh, is 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 producing that? Or you know, so they've they've for instance they've 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 taken a stake in an LNG producer. Uh, with some sort of uh, Australian options, I think the, the the RBC note sort of you know said, oh maybe they might start investing in the energy transition. I mean, so I think you know there are some the, it 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 you know the idea that they were kind of locked into spending their money on this particular goal obviously is quite limiting. So I I imagine Aramco is quite glad to have that extra you know leeway, so they can be kind of you know pick and choose a little bit more about how to get the kind of the best bang for their buck. The other thing I saw, I'm sorry to jump in was uh, that people speculating that this was Aramco seeing the writing on the wall and that they're they're cutting it because they see demand plummeting and things like that. And I was sort of thinking, you know, this is the same as the, the sort of all the share prices falling in the service companies, right? There's a lot of speculation going on what, as you say, may well just be a sort of pretty sensible housekeeping decision a few years off, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, yeah, it's, a, it's another it's another kind of a, like an interesting kind of a question, isn't it? Like, have, have Aramco run the numbers and decided that, I don't know, like oil demand's going to peak in, I don't know, 2029 or something? Obviously, some people are saying that. I mean, I think, you know, there are some sort of forecasts saying, you know, we're kind of heading for, uh, for for kind of peak demand. So, 
you know, it, at, at that point, if if they're right, if 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 Oldman isn't going to keep on going up, maybe it makes sense for 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 Ramco to look at other things, right? To 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 kind of reinvest that money. I think I think one point to note is that obviously. Saudi Arabia is still making pots of cash from it. The dividend is going to carry on, you know, flowing. Obviously, that's that's very much a commitment that Aramco has made, and that's obviously kind of plays into those kind of political questions around Aramco's role. So, I, I, I mean, I think there's, there's there's kind of no question around sort of oil's continued primacy, at least in the short term. But I think, yeah, it certainly raises some kind of questions around that kind of longer term goal, right? Where does Aramco go? What happens, you know, in a, in a in a world where there there is kind of changing competition, and I think this, you know, it, it it certainly plays into that. The the last little thing I was going to mention, just kind of to do with the Ramco kind of making the right investment decisions. I well, I saw Woodmax note on this, and they were kind of there was part of them suggesting that you know post COVID inflation playing a hand here, and you know, it's just kind of you know funny to think that a company like Aramco, obviously like ultra wealthy, you know, probably biggest oil company in the world. They're still hit by inflation. They're still looking at their, uh, making sure they get the right investments here, there, and everywhere. Uh, despite the fact they're building a however many mil- many billion dollar theme park in the middle of the Arabian Gulf, <laughs> uh, you know, they're just like the rest of us, guys. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think, I mean, to, to to me, I kind of feel like that makes you know that 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 kind of feels like the most logical sense, right? Like, why would they spend this extra money? On something on a, on a project that may not actually, you know, kind of go ahead, right? So I think, I mean, it it, it feels like yes. I mean, I think you know, kind of, uh, it 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 gives them a stronger hand, doesn't it? In kind of you know discussions with with service providers, it saves them some cash. It 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 feels like a very logical move. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thank you for that analysis, Ed. And that is it. That's your lot this week. And that is the latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thanks to Ed and to Andrew for joining me. As for me, I'm going back to work. And away from Monkey Watch, says every sorry journalist across Scotland. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.